You know something is wrong. You can see it all around you. You're wondering how things got to this point. Good is called evil and evil is called good. You want to truly know why we got to the brink of the abyss. You can't just be told. You must see it for yourself. I'm Scipio Eruditus, and this is Dispatches from Reality. Hello, hello, my dispatchers, my listeners. I am your author, your narrator, your host, Scipio Eruditus. And today's episode is a topic that is more important uh, now than perhaps even when I wrote on it first uh, in the aftermath of the October seventh uh, attack um false flag uh, very likely upon israel and so this question that we're going to be exploring today this topic that we're going to be exploring today is the question of who is israel it seems uh somewhat somewhat self-explanatory right well israel's this country over in the middle east right they claim to be israel that's is that not israel now, for the christian i do not believe that is the case we're going to cover a great deal of scripture, um, really vast swaths of scripture. When I, um, you know, when I do my biblical commentaries, I prefer to inject as little of my own opinions on the matter as possible. Um, there is just enough of that going around, right? And uh, you know, uh, the other thing too is that when you see the essay, it's real. It's mostly just Bible verses. Honestly, I'm just reading the Bible and you know, expounding upon what is really self-evident throughout the totality of scripture and that is israel was never a physical people solely it was never about a single ethnic group or race right this was always about having the entire human race worshiping god their creator and this is evident throughout the old testament as well right and that is the You know, something that is, today's day and age, we are just so biblically ignorant, and it's really just stunning, right? The the craziness that is proffered, and the absolutely heretical doctrines that are proffered on a, you know, seemingly daily basis now. There are arenas and doctrines that have been settled for, I mean, truly thousands of years in some instances, that are being overturned, that are being uh, assaulted and attacked. And I think this, this doctrine of who the, the true Israel is, the Israel of God, uh, or the Israel of the Spirit, as it were, versus the Israel of the flesh, I mean, this is such an important doctrine, and it, it colors how you view the Bible, how you view Scripture, how you view, uh, how you view Christ, right? And this is not a, is it a salvation issue? Obviously not, right? But I mean, I get kind of annoyed personally when people are like, oh, well, that's not a salvation issue and it's all about the gospel. Well, yes, the gospel is very important, but that's not the sole job here, right? That's not the sole job of any teacher. It is to instruct all the Bible is profitable for doctrine, 
for instruction, for teaching, for reproving. The entirety of it. And so, when we look at the entirety and the totality of Scripture, these doctrines reveal themselves. They reveal themselves quite clearly. And when we look at the New Testament, and we see how it talks about the Old Testament, well, it's a very different way than most churches in America talk about the Old Testament. It's a very different way than most, you know, frankly, some of the largest denominations are talking about the Old Testament. I mean, you look at some of the prophecies of the kingdom of God concerning, you know, the kingdom of God. You look at how Paul talked about it. You look at how Peter talked about it after Pentecost. It is very different from how the modern church has interpreted these things. You know, as I address in my essay, I think there's a very important reason for that. A very important reason for that. It's the reason why the Pharisees could not see that their Messiah had come in the flesh. It's the reason why even the apostles for a time did not understand who Christ truly was. And it is the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit to teach us, to guide us, we cannot understand Scripture. We literally can't do it. Without the Holy Spirit to teach us, we cannot understand all of the, the layers of meaning and subtext that is, that is hidden from us, hidden from our carnal eyes. And so, once the Holy Spirit has descended upon the apostles, they realize these things. And I mean, even after Jesus explicitly tells them three different times that he is going to die, that he is going to rise again, that the Pharisees are going to persecute them, that he will rise on the third day. Despite being told this multiple times, very clearly, the apostles do not understand this. And now Jesus isn't just telling them things that no one else had spoken about or talked about. Isaiah talked about him. Jeremiah talked about him. Moses talked about him. Micah, Zechariah, Ezra, all of the prophets foretold of the days that the apostles got to see, and that is the coming of Christ. And yet, despite all this clear evidence, they didn't understand. The Messiah was in front of them, and they did not understand. Why? Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. No, 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, it talks about how God's wisdom is revealed by the Spirit. So, from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 here, starting at verse 6. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world, that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, Eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches, searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. So it is without, without this Spirit we cannot understand the deeper mysteries of God of Christ, of his glory and his majesty. We can't understand these things. And, you know, this is why the, the Bible talks about faith being, a, a, you know, a gift, truly. And Jesus tells them, you know, tells us 
in John chapter 14, verse 26, that he will send the Holy Spirit who will teach and remind us of what he has said. And this is echoed in John's first epistle, chapter 2, verse 27. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. What is that anointing? That anointing is the Holy Spirit. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And so, this is one, one of the really incredible things, and that something that is just taken for granted, honestly, within dispensationalist circles, and you know, a lot, a lot of circles, honestly, not just the dispensationalist. There is a, this idea that we can just read the text of the Bible and that we can understand every little thing about it. I mean, we have preconceived biases. We have our carnal nature. I mean, we read things and we, imp- we put our own spins and interpretations upon them. And so this is, you know, why the other important, you know, cornerstone of any kind of biblical interpretation is that it is not for private interpretation. There is no, there's no like, you're, oh, well, what does this mean? What does this verse mean to you? What is that? Oh, okay. Well, what does that mean to you, Johnny? (laughs) That's not, now does that mean a verse doesn't have multiple meanings? Obviously, right? But we do not just get to choose what it means to us. The verses say what they say, and it can mean multiple things. It's going to have multiple meanings, a spiritual meaning, a physical meaning, you know, metaphorical, what have you. But this idea that we can all just show up reading the Bible and, and, I mean, you can come away with some very dangerous ideas, some very dangerous doctrines that way. You see one verse out of context and you start reading the rest of the verses in that same light. And, you know, it's something that really stood out to me as I was rereading the gospel in the last couple of years here. Because, I mean, I'll just be honest with you. Some of these revelations are still fairly fresh to me. I'm still trying to process my, you know, what this means for the rest of, uh, you know, really the rest of my understanding of the scripture. But, you know, before we can interpret other more opaque parts of scripture, well, we need to understand the very clear doctrines, right? The divinity of Christ, the Trinity, who the real Israel is, the church of God. What is the temple? The temple of God. Where is that right now? Where is Jerusalem right now? The true Jerusalem of God, where is it? These are questions that are extremely important, extremely important to understanding. Because how you understand these doctrines colors the rest of your understanding. Truly, it dictates how you live your life as a Christian. If you think that we are on a downslope, that the church basically gets snuffed out in iniquity and is taken away before some final judgment. This is what the dispensationalists preach. And you know, I'm, I'm still working my way through biblical prophecy, but what I'll, what I'll say is this, is that once you understand who Israel is, the true Israel, once you understand that Bible prophecy is not about Israel, it's about Jesus Christ. I mean, Revelation 19.10 states that the, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All of Bible prophecy, it's not about some people group. It's about Jesus Christ. And once you realize that, once you see these, these 
prophecies in these verses and you start realizing who this is really about. Well, Jesus starts showing up everywhere throughout the Bible. He is all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the Trinity as well. You know, the idea that the Trinity is just like this papist doctrine, you know. <laughs> okay, then why did God come to Abraham as three men? Three different beings show up before Abraham in chapter 18 of Genesis. Why? I mean, throughout the, you know, the New Testament, it's a <laughs> totally different thing, right? But I mean, just, it, it, it's, it's kind of crazy, you know, the people who deny the Trinity. I mean, they have, they'll take these verses out of context, and that's really all that, you know, heretics have. And so you have to pull verses totally out of context, right? Well, you know, oh, well, Jesus said he can only do what, you know, is in the will of his Father. Yes, precisely. Because they are the same being. He is the Father, as he states. If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. Well, if Jesus is not God, then how is that possible? Right? The Old Testament states that God is the only one that can forgive sins. But Jesus forgives sins when he was during his ministry. And the Pharisees, you know, were like, hey, this is blasphemy. And they were right. If he was not God. If he was an angel or whatever else, as you know, people like the Seventh-day Adventists or the Jehovah's Witnesses or really a lot of these uh, schismatic uh, sects, right? They will degrade the divinity of Christ. And these are some of, the, some of the tools they use. But, I mean, this is where, if you, do not, if you do not hold Jesus Christ in the reverent light that he should be held in as Lord, reigning at the right hand of the Father as we speak, the throne of David, it is not a physical throne, it is a heavenly throne. That's not my opinion. If you disagree, you can take it up with Peter, you can take it up with Paul. You can take it up with the Holy Spirit, I guess. <laughs> Since the, he was the one who inspired them to write those things. There is a, a great deal of confusion, a great deal of confusion uh, in this time, in this hour. And the topic of who is Israel is foremost among them, foremost among them. And so, I have been, I know <laughs> I've told some of my, uh, my readers about this before, and I'm, uh, you know, for the, the paying subscribers, I've dropped, you know, some, uh, some of my uh, future works, right, uh, talking about series that are coming up. But this is an issue that I'm going to be talking about much more in depth, right? Because this ideology, this idea, dispensationalism, the premillennial rapture, Christian Zionism, whatever term you want to throw on it. But this idea that there is a physical Israel and that there are prophecies still yet to be fulfilled in regards to them, well, I, I disagree. Honestly, the more and more I read through Scripture, the more and more I really struggle to find prophecies that have not been. I don't know how you can say, what prophecies have not been fulfilled? You know, oh, well, X, Y, all these good things, you know, that, you know, that was promised to Israel, these things, you know, they haven't been fulfilled, X, Y, Z. Well, as you'll note, in those books, right, I mean, read Zechariah. There are, there are a lot of good things promised to the people of Israel that, from a literal reading of it, have not been fulfilled. But uh, let's not overlook this little part here, kind of a, a pretty big qualifier to the rest of the prophecies. And this is not the only... Uh, there is a qualifier on all of these prophecies, right? All of these prophecies. Zechariah 1.3, Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, 
saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, right, this entire prophecy, all of Zechariah's prophecies in regards to what he's going to give to Israel, blessings, etc., well, it's reliant upon them turning unto him. Well, I don't, I don't think, you know, it takes a rocket scientist, you know, to figure out, well, did Israel, when the Messiah came, did they turn unto God? No. Now, Jesus kept up his end of the bargain here, if you keep reading later on in Zechariah, right? I mean, hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ would be born, Zechariah, in perfect detail, prophesies about the destruction of the temple. He prophesies that Christ will ride into Jerusalem on a white colt, that he will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that those 30 pieces of silver will be used to buy this field. God keeps up his end of the bargain. It's his people who don't. And so, I think it's a, it's a very, very crucial understanding. And to properly contextualize and to, and to realize, oh, wow, you know, we are the people of God. God doesn't have multiple people, right? I mean, I find the idea, you know, frankly, just very bigoted. This idea that just because if you pass through a, you know, a special birth canal, that there are promises made to you that are not made to the rest of, of Christians. I mean, truly, I ask to the dispensationalists, to those who disagree, what promises are Jewish Christians going to receive that I, as a Gentile Christian, will not receive? You know, according to their distinctions. I don't believe in those distinctions. But according to them, they think there is a, you know, the Gentile church and the, and the Jewish church. Despite God talk, one spirit, one body, there's not multiple churches here. There's not. So these delineations, they're man-made. Like this doctrine is man-made. And we're going to be going in depth, looking at the progenitors and the purveyors of this doctrine. And so, for the further research section, one of those books that eventually we'll be touching on much more in depth, but I recommend you read it now, is The Incredible Schofield and His Book by Joseph M. Canfield. Now, Cyrus Schofield, a man um, who, for how large of a role he played and, you know, still does play in American Christianity and modern Christianity. Uh, really not very many autobiographies or biographies, rather, on the man. Essentially, there's two major ones. There's a positive one that Schofield helped write. And then there is a much more critical look here by Joseph Canfield. Yeah, it's honestly very shocking. Very, very shocking stuff. I don't want to belabor the point now. There's an episode already going to be, uh, you know, a fairly long one, but um, a liar, a con man, a cheat, a charlatan, uh, clearly not a man of God. His own life uh, reveals that. The disdain and callousness that he treated his first family with, abandoned his family, apparently had a jailhouse conversion, and then ne- never reconciled with his first family. and you know, his daughters from that first marriage um, struggled financially throughout their lives. And this man made millions and millions of dollars of like early 1900s dollars. So we're talking significantly more in today's money. Not a penny to his original family. I mean, that's, that's not the testimony of a same man. That's just not, all right? I think it's Second Peter 
where he talks about if, if any man will not provide for his own family, then he is worse than a heathen. Worse than a heathen if he will not provide for his own family. Cyrus Schofield, a very dangerous man, and honestly, the more I've read about him, a very evil man. A very evil man. Uh, his connections with Zionists, with wealthy industrialists, occultists, bankers. These are not the connections of a Christian man, not the company of a Christian man. It is, however, the company and connections of a insidious agent who has perhaps been given financial largesse and access to printing and publishing presses that an author of his size would, you know, and a man who had wrote one book before the Schofield Reference Bible. And just amazingly lucrative deals are passed his way. It's, it beggars belief. It beggars belief. And so, yeah, Cyrus Schofield, we're going to be going in-depth into him pretty soon here in the, uh, the next couple of months. Um, I have some pretty large uh, series that I'm working through here and that uh, the Wolves Within series is definitely up, uh, up on the agenda to come here soon. But before that, I highly recommend uh, The Incredible Schofield and his book. Now, next up here, we have Jesus in the Talmud by Peter Schaefer. And a, an honest and scholarly look at the appearances of Jesus Christ in the Talmud, which for those unfamiliar, the Talmud is uh, called the Oral Torah. It is the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders that Christ denounces and repudiates. And this is, the Talmud is merely the, the written form, the codification of those oral traditions uh, allegedly passed down from the 70 elders. Uh, <laughs> you know, right? They, uh, the Jews like to claim that the elders received the more perfect version of the Torah, right? And it was the oral version. Now, if you look at what the oral version of the Torah, the Talmud says, and you look at the actual word of God, uh, they're in total contradiction with one another. The Talmud says that you can commit witchcraft, that you could commit uh, prostitution, um, that theft, depending on the race of the person, as long as they're not Jewish, then it's okay. Well, all these things are obviously wrong in the Torah. No matter the race of the person, it's not okay to steal from anyone, right? Ten Commandments, pretty clear. Thou shall not steal? There's, I mean, there's no little addendum on that, right? Yeah, what's, what possibly be mean by that, thou shall not steal? You know, we need some kind of... Uh, some oral tradition to really understand what that means and to pull out the, you know, the true meaning from thou shall not steal. I mean, this is what the level that we're talking about here, right? And so the truly vile and discuss disgusting things that is said about Christ in the Talmud, it's, it's stuff that, uh, you know, we're going to touch on in this essay, just a, a very small amount of what they say about Jesus in the Talmud. It's, um, I'm loath to even repeat some of this. Honestly, I'm loath to even repeat some of this. It's, they say that Jesus was a bastard. They say that Mary was a whore, that she was an adulterer who was impregnated by a Roman soldier named Pantera, uh, where that's where the band, the metal band, got their name, a mockery of Jesus Christ. It's really, just a small fraction of the things that are said in the Talmud about Jesus Christ. You cannot talk about God's Son in this way. And be the people of God. Just point blank, period. And so, truly, 
It's something that I know it sounds insane. It is insane. Uh, it's, it's vile, right? But it's, it's there and you can read it and you can verify it for yourself. Up next here, we have uh, The 70 Weeks and the Great Tribulation by Philip Morrow, a uh, excellent book at Daniel 70 Weeks and the Great Tribulation, one of the, really one of the best Bible prophecy books I've ever read in my entire life, uh, hands down. Uh, Mr. Morrow was a, you know, was taken by dispensationalism for a time and then left it and started writing, uh, you know, books and uh, polemics against it. And so he was very skeptical of dispensationalism during the advent, you know, the early 1900s, during the advent of dispensationalism, when the, the Schofield Reference Bible uh, first originated here. And so the 70 weeks prophecy, the Great Tribulation, I'll be covering those in more depth at a later time. But just suffice to say, everything you've been told about Daniel's 70 weeks is wrong. Um, it's not about the Antichrist, it's about the Messiah. If you read, the actual verses from Daniel chapter uh, 7, uh, you will see, right? You'll see, it's, I believe it's verses 24 through 27. It's not very long, you know, prophecy, right? Um, all the big, you know, chapter 20, or verse 24 here, right? I mean, we're all talking about things that the, that the Messiah will do, that the Messiah accomplishes. And likewise, the Great Tribulation, which if you go to my um, kind of follow-up article or essay to this piece, uh, that wicked generation. I, I talk a bit about the Great Tribulation, so um, I I cannot recommend Philip Morrow's books highly enough. Um, the Hope of Israel. What is it? Another book by Philip Morrow. Just incredible, incredible writing. Um, you know, if you want to find good Bible teaching, honestly, you need to go outside of the twentieth century. And really, almost <laughs> almost out of the 18th century, depending on you know your school of uh, your school of thought. There, um, <laughs> I find I'm reading commentators more and more often from the 1500s and the 1600s than I am from <laughs> you know from anything recent. And that's not to say there aren't you know Bible teachers in this day and age that aren't you know that aren't skilled and aren't still doing good work. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the late Dr. Michael Heiser's work, but if you really want to understand how we got to this point in the church, where we have turned this pagan nation of Israel into an idol, you're going to have to go back a bit in time, and you're going to have to read books before the Balfour Declaration, before 1948 and the creation of this nation. If you really want to get to the truth of the matter, and that's you know what I had to do, is I had to, you got to start digging, right? You got to start digging through history, see what Christians have said on these topics throughout history. I think that's really one of my greatest criticisms against dispensationalism is that it is such an untethering from millennia of church tradition that, you know, and that doesn't mean all traditions are good. There's plenty of church traditions that, you know, I disagree with, right? But that doesn't mean that all the traditions are wrong. And so it's, we have such a rich church history, such a rich, such a rich testimony of the body of saints and that i mean you know before i really started studying these topics in depth for my own i never heard about josephus and by you know in in church or the destruction of jerusalem i mean these are huge pivotal events within the history of the church and i mean i 
I never heard a sermon until I, you know, until I listened to Pastor Chuck Baldwin and his sermon on the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, I'm, I had not heard one on it personally. And so, yeah, just a, a wealth of great books, great topics here. Um, so, yeah, of course, we can't mention an article about biblical commentary without mentioning the 1611 KJV, uh, my preferred uh, version, and then also a, a couple of Substack articles here. So we have The Gospel of Dispensationalism. I'm by uh, my fellow Substacker, Max Wang. I'm a big fan of his Substack. I highly recommend you go and subscribe to that as well. A lot of great biblical commentary. Uh, he focuses pretty exclusively on biblical commentary and, uh, you know, just a, a lot of great uh, essays, a lot of great pieces in the gospel of dispensationalism. Uh, truly, it is a different gospel once you really start to dig into it. Um, excellent, excellent exploration of it. And then lastly, my own Substack article, we got the power of symbols, a very important, you know, kind of addendum to this, right? And the, the power that symbols have, not just, you know, upon us, but within our, our public discourse. And it's quite, you know, I, I find it quite ironic, honestly, that pagan symbols are now being adopted as Christian symbols, and we're claiming that they're actually Jewish symbols. I mean, the Star of David, you cannot find a single, not, not one, not a single Bible verse about the Star of David in the Bible. It doesn't show up. Now, stars are talked about almost exclusively in two manners. They are referred to as angels, explicitly and metaphorically. And then the children of Israel are referred to as the stars, right? Again, a metaphor. Uh, there will be so many of the children of God that it will be countless like the stars. These are the only, pretty much the only references we see to stars throughout the scriptures, talking about the children of God, talking about the angels of God. That's it. Besides two verses. Two verses. We have a prophecy from Amos and then in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen paraphrases that prophecy and expounds upon it, actually. The only star that's talked about is not the star of David. It's the star of Remphan, of Moloch, of Chiyun. The star that these Jews, who call themselves Jews, but are not, and do lie, the synagogue of Satan, their symbol is the star of David. It is the star of Chiyun, of Moloch. They invented this, and then they claim it belonged to David. Absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And so the Power of Symbols article goes and explores that a little bit more in depth, but just for the Cliff Notes version, I mean, it's really quite, it's quite staggering. Quite staggering. When you do the, the actual history and research of this, you know, the, the hexagon symbol, and how this has been hijacked and used by modern Christians and, you know, it's just, oh, it's very, it's very disheartening. It's very disheartening. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's, I think that's, you know, I really pray that that is evident from my writings on these topics and from other, uh, you know, biblical commentaries on these, what are admittedly very thorny issues. 
And I, I really just want to stress, you know, that this is not from a, it's not from a place of hatred. It is not from a place of, honestly, it's from a place of duty. I could not in good conscience read what the Talmud has to say about Jesus Christ and not speak up. To lie to our Jewish brothers and claim that they have some special dispensation, that there is an alternate route of salvation for them, that they need not be proselytized to, we are sending them straight to hell. That is not love. That is hatred. And so actually speaking the truth about these issues, unapologetically, that is love. To pretend that your brother is going to go to heaven when in actuality, the most horrific torment of hellfire awaits him, that is not love. That is hatred. And we have been given this perverse notion within the church that actually speaking the truth is mean. And that's hatred. And Jesus, you know, that's, Jesus was always nice. Really? Was he nice when he called the Pharisees sons of the devil? Vipers, whitewashed tombs. Was he nice when he whipped people out of the temple and destroyed their private property? God is much more complex than any singular emotion. Yes, he is love, but he is also a perfect hatred. Yes, he is peace, but he is also justice and violence. These things must be reconciled. These things must be reconciled. And so we've been sold just a very watered down and one note version of our Christ. And I think this teaching and this doctrine lies at the heart of so many of the issues that plague the church. So without further ado, I'll be reading from my October 17th, 2023 article, Israel of the Flesh, Israel of the Spirit. Quote, But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Wherefore hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because ye have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation of stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Isaiah 28, verses 13 through 16. End quote. The events of the last week in the land called Israel have certainly led to a myriad of reactions within American society and the church as a whole. I have purposely remained silent on this publication, as the fog of war has already made many a prognosticator look like a fool with the benefit of hindsight. Perhaps my fellow countrymen have forgotten about the lies surrounding the USS Maine, Pearl Harbor, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, Nayira al-Sabah, mythical WMDs in Iraq, 
or the ghost of Kiev. I, on the other hand, am not. Already, there are many Israeli propaganda narratives that have utterly fallen apart, such as the alleged mass beheading of infants by Hamas. To me, what is significantly more important than being first is being correct, and even more so, truthful. I've seen far too many men of God, many of whom I once respected, call for the violent destruction of the pagan nation of Palestine, that an Old Testament-style judgment should be carried out by the physical nation of Israel, a people whom they claim are of God. Cries to pray for Israel have turned into, kill them all, in a matter of days. This is not just a perverse twisting of scripture to justify a modern-day genocide, but it flies in the face on the clear teachings of Christ and, by extension, his apostles. Many promises and covenants were made with the seed of Abraham, a set-aside people who themselves descended from the Gentile Abram. Before Abram ever made a covenant with God, he was set aside through his faith and not through the works of the flesh, a presaging of the covenant that Christ would establish through his sacrifice. See Luke chapter 22, verse 20. This was the fulfillment of the covenant which all the prophets foretold, such as Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. These promises, most pertinently seen in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17, are just as important today as they were those thousands of years ago. To whom do those promises apply, and what does that mean for those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ? Is Israel solely a people and a physical nation, or is it a faith? I will be adding as little commentary as I possibly can, but the Word of God more than speaks for itself. This essay will be my longest one yet, as it is vitally important to present Holy Scripture in its full and proper context. Firstly, it is crucial to establish that all of the prophets of old, inspired men of God whom the Holy Spirit spake through, foretold that the Gentile nations would be blessed and reconciled to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Quote, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. First Epistle of Peter, chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. End quote. That grace, of course, is the redemptive gospel of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. This is a point Paul emphasizes as well in his letter to the church at Rome. Quote, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 1-2. through Indeed, Christ explicitly states this reality himself. Quote, for had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 46, end quote. Despite learning at the foot of our Savior, even the apostles did not fully understand this truth until Christ himself opened their understanding after his resurrection. Quote, and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all these things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms, concerning me. 
Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, And thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 44 through 47. End quote. Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, once again makes this abundantly clear. Quote, and now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 3, verses 17 through 26, end quote. The plan for the salvation of the physical Israel, spoken of through the prophets of old, is no different than that of his church. We must all repent, believe on him, and call him Lord. Paul makes this same point in his letter to the church at Ephesus. Quote, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. It is only through the Holy Spirit that this mystery of Christ was revealed unto his apostles. There aren't different salvation paths for different peoples. All must call Christ their king. These promises were never meant for one ethnic group alone, even under the first covenant, which the book of Jonah and the book of Esther make clear. The eventual fate of the earthly kingdom of Israel was foretold by John the Baptist. Quote, then he said to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root 
of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Christ, too, likens the eventual fate of the physical Israel to the tree that refuses to bear good fruit. Quote, He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it, and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. End quote. We see this same symbolic judgment of the fig tree in Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 through 14, as well as Matthew, chapter 21, verses 18 through 22. This concept is further expounded upon by Christ when he speaks to the Pharisees. Quote, Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures, The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 through 45. End quote. The Pharisees understood quite clearly what Christ meant, and it truly speaks to the decrepit state of the church that most of us now do not. Paul, too, likens the believer to the husbandry or the fruits of God. Quote, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. 
for we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. First Epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. End quote. The following verse is often brought forth as proof by dispensationalists that these distinctions have not been done away with within the kingdom of God. Quote, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. First Epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 32. End quote. Now, if their interpretation of the above verse is the correct one, why would Paul distinctly point out the Israel after the flesh earlier in that same chapter? Quote, I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread in one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold Israel after the flesh. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? First Epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 15 through 18. End quote. In the physical realm, there are certainly still the plain distinctions between those who call themselves Jews, the unbelievers, Gentiles, and those who profess Christ as Savior, the Church of God. However, those distinctions are of an earthly sort. They are clearly not applied to the spiritual body of Christ, which every believer is a part of. Paul makes this abundantly clear just two chapters later in this same letter. Quote, For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. First Epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. Within the full context of both the chapter and the epistle as a whole, it is clear that this is a fleshly distinction maintained by those outside of the church, as we are all of one body in Christ Jesus. Paul's teaching is not some new doctrine of his own making. It is merely a clarification and expounding upon of what Christ had already taught. Quote, While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. And then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. End quote. Quite simply put, it is those who do the will of the Father that are of the family of Christ. Now, if the dispensationalists are correct in their interpretation of 1 Corinthians 10.32, how does that square with the clear reading of the following verses? Quote, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, 
in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Epistle to the Romans, chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, end quote. Circumcision was always meant to be of the heart and not of the flesh. See Deuteronomy 10, 16. This exact point is made by Paul in Philippians chapter 3 as well. Quote, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. End quote. Throughout Paul's letter to the church at Rome, this point is made again and again. Quote, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision, to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Epistle to the Romans, chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. It is through that same faith, which Abraham demonstrated while yet uncircumcised, that we are made the sons of God. Quote, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 6 through 16. This is made even more clear by Paul in the following chapter. Quote, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Epistle to the Romans, chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, end quote. Not all of those who claim to be of the carnal Israel are of the Israel of God, where the Lord has cut those natural branches off. Quote, For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be, but life from the dead? For if the first fruits be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, 
and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God, on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Sion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Epistle to the Romans, chapter 11, verses 15 through 28. This evocative analogy hearkens to Christ's own parables on this same subject. And that said, a vital distinction is point and point is made by Paul here. The Jews, or the Israel of the flesh, are not forever cut off. They can be grafted into the kingdom once again. But as Christ also states, they must first recognize him as their Lord. Quote, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, end quote. In addition to the letter to the church at Rome, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus further clarifies this very clear doctrine spoken of by the prophets of old. Quote, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. That at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, 
having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, or to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God and one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8-22. through 22, end quote. Peter too makes the same point, that we who are in Christ are his holy nation, living stones in the spiritual house of God, sanctified by the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. Quote, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. First Epistle of Peter, chapter 2, verses 4-10. through 10, end quote. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul once more makes his point more than clear for us. Quote, he therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of the faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Epistle to the Galatians, chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Again, it is made manifestly clear by Paul that the scriptures and the prophets foretold of that coming day when the Gentiles of the flesh would be made the children of God. We who are of the faith are blessed with Abraham a point made even more explicit at the end of this same chapter. Quote, Wherefore, 
The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Epistle to the Galatians, chapter 3, verses 24 through 29. End quote. Not only are we blessed like faithful Abraham, but we are of his seed and heirs according to those same promises. Quote, and because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Epistle to the Galatians, chapter 4, verses 6-7. through seven. End quote. As Paul expounds upon in later chapters, it is those who walk in that same faith, the one true faith, that are the Israel of God. Quote, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be upon them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. Epistle to the Galatians, chapter 6, verses 15 through 16. End quote. The Israel of God are those who call him Lord and walk in faith, thereby being made heirs to the promise. It is simply not germane to build doctrines that hinge upon a myopic reading of a solitary verse, all whilst ignoring the parts of the very chapter and epistle that refute that same notion. It should be manifestly clear by this point that using 1 Corinthians 10.32 to justify this ongoing distinction between the Church of God and the Israel of God is not only fallacious, but it forces one to ignore vast swaths of very clear scripture, from the words of Paul, to Peter, to John, and most importantly, Jesus Christ. The promises of Genesis 12 and 17 to Abraham are not only partially fulfilled through Jesus Christ, see Galatians 3.16, but they are also given to us as seeds and heirs of that same promise, Galatians 3.29. All of the prophets, from the beginning of the world, prophesied of this glorious reality where all the nations of earth would worship the risen Messiah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The same mistake being made today was this mistake being made by the Pharisees, Judeans, and even for a time, the apostles. The promises and prophecies of the coming kingdom were interpreted through a carnal lens. Without the Holy Spirit, it was impossible for the fleshly Israel to understand that these prophecies were of a spiritual nature. The Church of God is not the replacement of Israel. It is the fulfillment. Quote, but though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, 
let him be accursed. Epistle to the Galatians, chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. End quote. This idea that Christ's church and the Israel of God are somehow separate entities is a rather old line of thinking made new again. This fallacious belief was one of the most pernicious problems that plagued the early church, which is why so many epistles and apostles touch on the subject. This misguided and false doctrine was introduced into the modern church by Nelson Darby, as well as Cyrus I. Schofield, the progenitors of dispensationalism. A proper analysis and refutation of these men's seriously misguided, if not outright heretical, doctrine is outside of the scope of this article. This one I will be addressing at length at a later date, where this poisonous Zionist fruit lies at the heart of so many problems that now plague Christ's bride. What is to be said then of modern-day Israel, both of the flesh and the nation? The same that is to be said of any people or person who denies Christ. Quote, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. First Epistle of John, chapter 2, verse 22. End quote. How much worse, then, are those who not only deny him, but preach utterly vile things about our Lord, such as this. Forgive me for even have to repeating this, Lord. Quote, Onkelos then went and raised Jesus the Nazarene from the grave through necromancy. Onkelos said to him, Who is most important in that world where you are now? Jesus said to him, The Jewish people. Onkelos asked him, Should I then attach myself to them in this world? Jesus said to him, Their welfare you shall seek, their misfortune you shall not seek. For anyone who touches them is regarded as if he were touching the apple of his eye. Onkelos said to him, What is the punishment of that man? A euphemism for Jesus himself in the next world. Jesus said to him, He is punished with boiling excrement. As the master said, anyone who mocks the words of the sages will be sentenced to boiling excrement. And this was his sin, as he mocked the words of the sages. The Gemara comments, come and see the difference between the sinners of Israel and the prophets of the nations of the world. As Balaam, who was a prophet, wished Israel harm, whereas Jesus the Nazarene, who was a Jewish sinner, sought their well-being. The Talmud, Gittin 57a, end quote. That is but a small sample of the truly damnable blasphemies hurled at our Savior by the carnal Israel in their Talmud which almost every sect of Judaism holds in higher regard than the Torah. I ask my brothers and sisters in Christ who yet cling to Schofield's doctrine, do you truly think God will bless a people who preach the most abominable heresies imaginable about his son? That he would bless a people such as this. From the times of Israel, Israel's the gayest country on earth. Study, one-third of Israelis are bisexual. Welcome to Tel Aviv, the gayest city on earth. Israel, becoming safe haven for pedophiles, with laws that allow any Jews to legally return, activists claim. Homosexuality is part of Jewish tradition. Welcome to Tel Aviv, the gayest city on earth. Is Tel Aviv the gay capital of the world? Question mark. Tel Aviv, gay capital of the Middle East, welcomes return of pride celebrations June 8th through 12th. Abortion access is a Jewish value. 
Reaction to Supreme Court Overturning Roe v. Wade Abortion is a Jewish value and should be safeguarded. From the National Council of Jewish Women From Haaretz We curse Christianity three times a day. Can Jews and Christians truly reconcile? The Eight Genders of the Talmud What the Torah teaches us about gender fluidity and transgender justice. More than just male and female, the six genders and ancient Jewish thought. If those who bless Israel will be blessed, and if those who curse them will be cursed, answer me this. Is America better off after pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into this foreign land? Is our country currently harvesting fruits of blessings? Are these fruits cursed? By any objective standard, America has not been blessed by their alliance with the pagan nation of Israel. This alone refutes the insipid notion that a nation or people must be lauded no matter their sins or their blasphemies. I ask my brothers and sisters in Christ, who is the synagogue of Satan spoken of by our Lord, if not this carnal and pagan Israel? Quote, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but the synagogue of Satan. Revelations 2.9 Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Revelations 3.9 It truly beggars belief to suggest that this country is somehow imbued by God with a divine mandate to wipe away the Gazans from their shores. The physical kingdom of Israel was destroyed for far less severe blasphemies than the ones we see on display within its synagogues and streets on a weekly basis. So, should we as the church pray for the pagan nation of Israel? Yes, of course. But that prayer is no different than the prayers that should be prayed for any pagan land that refuses to acknowledge Christ as the risen King. That they would repent humble themselves before their Messiah and believe on him for everlasting life. Quote, If you call a synagogue a brothel, a den of vice, the devil's refuge, Satan's fortress, a place to deprave the soul, an abyss of every conceivable disaster, or whatever you will, you are still saying less than it deserves. St. Jerome of Stridon. End quote.